0: She's dabbled in it all. Art, food, wine, fashion, travel, culture, spirituality and writing. Yes, Shobha Narayan wears many hats. But what she's known for most are her eclectically written books. More specifically, non-fiction memoirs. Her varied experiences reflect brilliantly in the words she pens. Her thoughts are deep, yet easy to grasp. Shobha Narayan is the author of five books. She has been a journalist and columnist for 30 years, writing for national and international publications. She has won a James Beard Award and a Pulitzer Fellowship. She has taught and lectured at universities in India and abroad. She is interested in Indian aesthetics and has researched its influence on jewellery, music, textiles and scents. She is a bird watcher, a wine drinker, and a gadget geek. And her lifelong mission is to get fit without exercising and lose weight without dieting. We love her energizing personality as much as we love her book. And it is my pleasure to have her on the Expert Hour today. So welcome Shoba. Welcome to this episode of the Expert Hour. It's great to have you with us today.
1: Thank you Archana for inviting me on your wonderful podcast.
0: Thank you. Uh, So, I have a list of some very interesting questions for you today. So, let me begin with the first one. Two of your four published books focus on food. Could you elaborate on your connection or your draw towards food?
1: I think India has a tradition of food that is both universal and very specific. Uh, By universal, I mean if we think of the things that connect modern Indians today, I would wager that it is cricket, Bollywood and food. Food is Indians, I mean, whether it's a North Indian who mispronounce our our dosas as dosas or South Indians who enjoy the charts, food, there has been a cross pollination with food. So it is a topic that can be mined. In multiple ways. So that was my draw, personal draw. And then once I began in uh, getting drawn to it, India too has an ancient history with food. There are textbooks such as Manaso Lhasa, which is a Sanskrit textbook that is essentially an encyclopedia of food. Um, and it has a link to South India. And okay. then the nimat Nama of North India, which is uh, about perfumery, but it's also about sensual pleasures. So these are ancient texts and we own this tradition. We are part of this tradition. And why not uh, mine it for uh, writing? So that was my angle. That was my approach.
0: It's actually a brilliant point that you've brought across. Even now, you know, as you see the world going through a pandemic, what you see most often popping up on social media, which has become like the lifeline of the world today, is food. In every aspect, every page that you open, something or the other related to food. So it's very interesting that you bring up this point now.
1: It's a food as comfort, which is a nice angle that you bring about.
0: After having read your book, you know, I just had a thought in my head. How interesting are these kind of Indian facts that you've put out in your most recent book to an Indian audience? Or do you find more traction to what you write with a Western audience?
1: So this is a tough and interesting question you asked me. So I have an agent in New York who sells my books or rather sends it out to different publishers. So I think this is a dilemma for every writer who's rooted in India, such as myself, and many of the people you have invited on your podcast, is that we want to write books that stay authentic to ourselves, but also communicate to our audience. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is if you're a South Indian, and I write for uh, Hindustan Times in uh, Delhi, even for simple things like Ulluttambarku, the Baileys that we refer to, they want a translation within brackets. My editors in Delhi will say Hindi-speaking people will not understand. So remaining true to who you are, but also appealing to an audience that is not from your land is a dilemma for every food writer because like we both know, foods are very specific. So it took me a while to figure out you know, I would think it is diluting, it is watering down, it's pandering to an audience, writing in a way that is not true to myself. But then once the way I think I made peace with it was for having a, an American friend read my writing. Hmm. And she's a food lover and she would say, Shoba, you know, all this is great, but I really don't understand it. Yeah. So to answer your question very briefly, it appears that I'm writing for an American or a global audience. But I really would like to write for a local audience, by which I mean even South Indian audience. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in between is the compromise and somewhere in between is where the writing falls.
0: But uh, I also noticed that you very categorically throughout your uh, Food and Faith book maintained the word Prasadam. You never called it prasad like how they do in the North. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was really sweet. That was really sweet. And I think on many notes, you know, being a South Indian like you, it was also very touching.
1: And you know, Archana, if I may add, one of the things that is a convention in journalism is to refer to people by their last name. So if yes. I were writing about you, I would write, I would start with Archana Shenoy, and then I would be Shanoi, Shonai, Shenoy throughout. Yes, yes. If I write about Gitanjali Maini, it would start with her name. And so one of the conventions that has been true to journalism doesn't make sense to me at all in India. And in fact, as a feminist, you should be called Archana throughout <laughs> the article. Gitanjali should be called Gitanjali throughout. <laughs> Absolutely. The which is what we do in journalism, is meaningless. So I am trying sort of, even that is a battle that I'm trying to
0: fight. That's also a very interesting point that you bring out, considering that so many of us women today choose to not use our married name. Like, I don't use my married name. Yeah, yeah. I continue to use my maiden name. So it's a very interesting point that you bring about here. And probably that's a topic for another day with you. Moving on to your book, which was, you know, what caught our interest and why we decided to do this podcast with you. You focused on food and faith in your latest book. How did you come up with this idea? So like most
1: modern Indians, I would say, I grew up in a devout household. My parents are from Palakkad, and we have strong links to Kerala. My dad grew up in Koteam. So we would go to Kerala. My mom's link to temples is in the mm-hmm. Kolur belt. So I grew up as in a devout Hindu household, then did the whole uh, run of I was an atheist when I was in college. And then earlier, in, I, I became agnostic. I said religion is meaningless. And now I have decided to come to terms with my faith, because being a Hindu is a huge part of who I am. And I tend to, again, the whole feminist angle comes here, I tend to belong to the Shakta cult, which is the goddess worshippers. So then I said, how can I figure out my faith, And also communicate how I came to it through a book. And food is a very nurturing and a very basic and a lovely way to approach temples. Because as you said, uh, Archana, we go to temples to eat as well. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes. And I think you've captured on that brilliantly. Because like I told you when I was, you know, just chatting with you a little earlier, sometimes you associate the temple with that, you know, little morsel of deliciousness that they offer you at the end of your worship. And that is what sticks in your head more than, you know, why you went to pray or what you went to pray for or, you know, the deity which you may never have actually even, you know, been able to see because you have just been pushed away from that Correct. viewing line. So Correct. that memory that holds on very tight in your mind is of that morsel of prasadam that you're given. And this is unique to Hinduism because I was thinking if... All over the world, people are
1: becoming disenchanted chanted with formal religion. So the mm. Catholics too, if in America, they give up their faith very easily. So if you belong to a devout household, how do you reel the youngsters in? And mm. Hinduism is perhaps one of the very few religions where we use food as a way to, te- to get the kids to go to temple.
0: When you say that, you know, it just brings back this memory to me of my dad dragging me to a uh, Shani Mahatma Temple every Saturday, and I would go very reluctantly, but I would go definitely because they offered a pulao as a prashadam, and that was probably the tastiest vegeta- vegetable pulao that I've eaten. So now that you have made that point, I'm sure that I'm, there were many kids like me who did that.
1: Is it in Bangalore? And maybe it's we can in go
0: Bangalore. Out. Yes, <laughs> it's in Bangalore in a in a nondescript uh, you know road inside in the annals of Sanjay Nagar where I grew up. So well, yeah, it it was very interesting, you know, now that you made that point, these little little memories just pop back into one's head. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who've read your book, who've also kind of, you know, had these recall factors. Now, um, moving on to my next point to discuss with you, we at the foundation were introduced to your book by Chandrika Auntie, who happened to buy it and, you know, told everyone about it. So we all went out and you know, bought your book also. She has a great affinity to the Madurai Meenakshi Temple. Mm-hmm. Would you care to tell us about your experience with that yeah.
1: temple? Madurai Meenakshi is a rock star temple. What I would call the, like Tirupati Balaji Temple or the Guruvayur Temple. She is the legend behind her coming to being itself is quite strong. Where she was trained in all the martial arts and everything. So I went to Madurai uh, fully expecting to write about the prasadam in the Madurai Meenakshi Temple, mm-hmm. and I wanted, like I told you, Archana, I. Kerala, where I grew up, I, I'm i a Chennai girl who went to Kerala for holidays. So the Bhagavati of Kerala, temples of Kerala are so unique in that they don't sanitize the goddesses. So if you look at Lakshmi or Saraswati as portrayed in the wonderful Raja Ravi paintings of your foundation, I find that those images to be very beautiful, but also very sattvic. The fierceness of Kali, of West Bengal, that all of those are taken out. And they are portrayed as mother goddesses benevolent. There are two places in India where still the, the woman in all her glory, the anger, the fierceness, the, the kickass, as we call it, it, still exists. One is in uh, no, the northeast in uh, West Bengal Assam belt and the other is in Kerala in the Bhagavad Gita So Madhuri Meenakshi attracted me because she is of that ilk, the fierce warrior goddess but i go there and i i go two three times and one of the i tell the priest i'm writing about prasadams and she say, he says amma you want to write about prasadams you go uh, to the little town nearby which is called the aragar kovil and they do a, a dosa as a prasadam which is a savory prasadam so hmm. then i said okay I'll return to Meenakshi later, but I went to this Aragar Kovil, who happens to be a Vishnu temple, and they have a very savory prasadam, which is unusual because as you know, most of the prasadams, um, in the big temples are, whether it's the Paisam of Ambalapura or the Kheer, the Shira, these are all sweets. So I write, I begin the chapter on Madurai with the Meenakshi, but I end it with uh, her brother, which is the Aragar of, uh, the Madurai.
0: Very interesting uh, facets these are, you know, you look at one temple to be the focus, but then you diversify that focus and also touch upon other more important but less known uh, shrines or deities around India. So that was another very interesting facet in your book. So uh, you've covered a variety of temples in the book. You've spoken about practices, foods, cultures inherent to that region. How did you compile this list? So,
1: mostly geographically, I wanted to include temples in the north, south, east, and west. Mm. I, uh, as a secular Indian, I wanted to uh, include temples of all faiths. That wasn't fully possible. So, it's largely a Hindu book with, there is, of course, a chapter on the Harmandir Sahib, which is the
0: golden temple.
1: Temple. You associate Langar with sacred food. There is a chapter on Uh, meal with a Jewish family in Mumbai. There is a chapter on Christian Christianity. You know, it's interesting, Archana. Even though we live in Bangalore, and there are so many of these feasts of Saint Mary's feasts, uh, that so I thought feasts are like prasadam, but they're not, as as perhaps <laughs> most many people know. So Christianity is a reach. Uh, Jainism. There are. There's only one temple that has a link to prasadams, which I was not able to visit. And then the Parsi faith, I have not uh, included. So there are exceptions, but so it's largely a Hindu book on Hindu temples and with some few other elements of Indian um, shrines thrown in. The important one is, of course, the Ajmer Dargah, which I write about. And I write about the Bhat Prasad with this. Yes. Which is,
0: That's interesting, actually, that you included the Ajmer Dargah in the book, you know. And it's probably something uh, I'm sure you know that most Hindus would never actually think of even visiting yeah
1: yeah
0: but i think everyone who reads the book should definitely you know make an effort now considering yeah. most of us are spending our time now exploring india post pandemic this yes. is probably a great place for us to but any anything that you would like to share about your experience from the Ajmer darga that might be interesting for listeners yeah. So, uh,
1: what was touching about the dargah is that it is a shrine for sh- for Sufism, and yeah. the Sufi faith is allows for sensuality, allows for in the interior as It's a, it's 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 almost like the Bhakti cults yes. in that they do they sing the kavali. When I visited, there were kavali singers with tears rolling down their eyes. So, um, the Sufi faith allows for the arts to come in. Um, which is not true of other aspects of Islam. They allow for emotions. It's highly rooted in emotions, which is why it's similar to the bhakti cults. Um, it is an interiorization and intensification of the Islamic faith in that sense. So it's like Hinduism has many cults or many uh, factions. Um, the Ajmer Darga is touching because I found it to be supremely sensuous. First of all, you go in and you see the red desi gulab and then the smell just permeates the whole place. And that is beautiful. The arrangement of flowers the, is beautiful. The way people sing and dance as a way of devotion is very beautiful. Like the whirling dervishes of Konya yes. in Turkey. It's uh, all in all, India, I think if you had to describe India in one word, people would say colorful, I would say sensuous. Indians are very adept at incorporating sensuality into our lives. And the Ajmer Darga, I found it to be the same way. That's amazing. That's
0: amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, before we can close off, uh, let me ask you about your favorite temple and your favorite prasadam. (laughs) It depends (laughs) on the mood of the moment, (laughs) Archana I've talked about the Bhagavati
1: temples as an ode to Gitanjali's mother who picked the book up. and I've talked about let me let me talk about your area, the Udupi temple, yes. uh, which is uh, which is a favorite. It is one that I have visited every year. And um, I think the reason I love that temple is because of the, you go in there and there is the shrine uh, where you look through. And then around the shrine are the women who sit and they braid the Tulsi garland. Yes. So again, you have the smell when you walk in. And I find religion gives them a purpose. And I go into the the Matha where the Anna Brahma. And you, yeah. I encountered an old man who was there every day for the five days that I was there. And I asked him, I speak rudimentary Kannada. I said, So he said, I am here every day because I am a widower. My kids are grown and gone. I have no use. They have no use for me. But coming to this temple and serving Krishna gives me purpose in life, which I think is the point of faith. At the end of the day, faith should give you some strength when the times are bad, when you lose a loved one to COVID. Faith should give you a purpose and meaning in life. That if it has done those two things, it has lived up to its meaning. So in the Udupi temple, so the first thing is the macro level of the Udupi temple being um, a draw for, you know, people of all walks of life. Yes. And the micro level is the food. The food is just so delicious. (laughs) It's just simple saru and a little bit of, you know, there's a lot of rice. It's served on the banana leaf and you eat it. There's three things on the plate and it's just so delicious. Yeah. So There is
0: something very fulfilling you know that offering that that you consume post your visit to the temple that kind of just rounds it off very beautifully yeah yeah
1: and the number of people that are fed every day yes and it's
0: astounding that they can you know manage to serve that many people like you even pointed out Harmandir Sahib that line of people entering for the langar is never ending and and there is something beautiful about actually seeing those many people going and coming out satisfied
1: And if I may, do we have time for me to ask? Yes, yes, yes. So I was thinking, what is the purpose of these prasadams? Why Mm -hmm. are we having any prasad? Whether it's Jagannath uh, Kshetra in Puri or the Udipi, uh, the Krishna temple in Udipi. And I discovered that the Krishna temple in Udipi have, they they have a Bhale Muhurta, they have a Akki Muhurta. So two years before, every year, they plant hundreds of thousands of, uh, banana saplings mm-hmm. as for the leaves that we use, that are used in the temple to feed. And then the akki varieties, there are about 18 varieties of local rices that they plant in the Udipi area. And I think one of the purpose of these prasadams is to preserve indigenous varieties of rice. The akki, the batta, um, and then the kattig, They all these temples uh, cook in wood and yeah. they plant trees continuously for the katiye and they plant trees continuously for the rice that they harvest to feed. So essentially the prasadams serve first of all they give employment and meaning to many people. Second of all they preserve the we all eat now Sona Masuri rice, but India had one lakh varieties of rice. And now if you go to these temples and you in Kerala you will see the red rice, the Nyavara, all of that. If in Karnataka you will see the like Rajamudi. So these temples are the uh, seats of tradition both spiritual and agricultural
0: amazing that's actually a great point that you you know brought out at the end because so many times we only focus on religion with mm. relation to a temple we never ever think about the deeper or the greater things that uh, a temple and a temple society might actually be doing for mm. that region or for that area so that's a great Thinking point that you've left our listeners with, and I'm sure we'd like to speak to you once more on, you know, more like you say, macro level, uh, you know, issues that might surround the Indian temples and religion as a whole. But thank you so much for this very, very interesting podcast today. It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you again, Archana, for having me. Thank you, Gitanjali, and Gitanjali's mother <laughs>
0: for introducing me <laughs> to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much.